with um yeah grid forming batteries they've got a, a 250 megawatt hour um grid forming battery that is in development now um and that's going to provide some synthetic inertia so there's that option and then we've got this project <laughs> whoa, from, whoa 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 wait wait yeah. wait you use the word synthetic inertia want to explain that yeah. for a second what is synthetic inertia <laughs> Well, you're the electrical engineer, aren't you? <laughs> well, I know what inertia is, and I know what synthetic is. You try to merge two things that don't go together. Inertia, is, inertia has to do with rotating mass, right? So it, it's not synthetic. What? It's they're trying are, are, to mimic mimic inertia. Welcome back to the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. I am your co-host, Alan Hall, and I'm here with the sultan of surfboarding, Dr. Rosemary Barnes, all the way from Australia. And this week, we have a really news-packed show uh, about a, a variety of different topics. Uh, purchase power agreements in the United States are all messed up right now, and, they're, and the, the prices are jumping to unheard of levels uh, quarter over quarter, year to year. The, the the rates are rising. Doesn't look like it's going to be any stop to it. Amazon is buying more renewables. Thank goodness. Siemens Gamesa is still in trouble. And Chinese wind is going to be entering into Western cultures in the near future. And tech news, can wind turbines stabilize the grid? Rosemary is going to answer that question for us. And then Ontario <laughs> government awards a $1.6 billion contract for train electrification. So welcome to... Welcome to modern technology, uh, Ontario. And then <clears throat> Catapult in the UK is connected uh, Bladebug with Echobolt to make a Bladebug Echobolt combination robot uh, torque machine. And then a freeze thaw battery, which is some new technology uh, where uh, we heat something up, we store energy in it, and then we freeze it. <laughs> and it holds energy for a long time. I don't know why we didn't think of that before. So let's get started uh, with purchase power or power purchase agreements. And the prices in the United States uh, rose an astounding 28.5% versus a year earlier, according to Online Renewables Trading Hub, Level 10 Energy. So the first quarter renewable PPA prices rose 9.7% to $39.91 per megawatt hour compared to fourth quarter 2021. That's a, a, a pretty substantial jump, Rosemary. Uh, and individually, uh, PPA prices for solar increased 6% versus 15 and 15.8% and versus a year earlier. Uh, sorry, let me explain that again. Individually, PPA prices for solar increased 6% quarter on quarter and 15.8% versus a year earlier, while those for wind went up 13.5% and 41.5% respectively. So the PPA prices for wind grew almost 50% year on year. That's crazy. Rosemary, what is making these large uh, increases in, in PPA prices? Yeah, and who's getting this, this increase? I mean, the way that the um, wind turbine um, manufacturers are talking, at least it doesn't sound like the, the money's flowing through to higher prices for them. So I guess it's the developers, but um, yeah. There you go. I think it's I think it's just driven by so many companies now have renewable energy targets and um, the supply chain is a little bit constrained. You know, there are some some 
choke points for, you know, rolling out new wind and solar farms as fast as they could be, you know, used. And so uh, I think that that's basically it. Companies have um, announced targets and now they need to pay more to achieve them. Otherwise, they get the the bad PR of having, you know, made a a target and then not actually met it. Yeah, I think that that's where that's where that's coming from. And I hope that it's temporary because. Uh, yeah, you think it's temporary? I don't think it's temporary. I think it's long no, term because the su- supply and demand curve are all whacked out. I hope it's temporary, but um, if things don't change, it won't be temporary. It'll be permanent. But there are some pretty, yeah. I don't know, they, in my opinion, easy things that we could do to roll out renewables faster. I think that there's a lot of bureaucracy that doesn't need to be there. There's more transmission that needs to be built and more understanding of, you know, how to, um, you know, where to put new projects and how to integrate them faster into the existing grid. Um, there's quite a lot of things like that that we could do so that we could get the projects to come on board faster because, I mean, all the developers I know have a long pipeline of projects and, like, we, you know, we've <laughs> we've got all these projects but we know that we're not going to get them all, um, partly because of supply chain problems. but they're mostly siding, you know, grid connecting in Australia is the real big problem. Um, it's just taking ages to get things right. grid connected and, um, yeah, transmission is not being upgraded as fast as it needs to be. It's one of the big um, big points of difference between the major parties and our upcoming federal election. So I'm really hoping to see some meaningful change um, for that in the, you know, the next term, but let's, let's see. If the trend continues and it looks like it's going to continue, uh, level 10 analysts expect corporate demand for renewable energy to continue to expand with the Security and Exchange Commission, SEC, and that's a U.S. bureaucracy, seeking to increase accountability around emissions of individual individual businesses adding support. So what they're talking about is sort of twofold. One, there's social pressure for uh, companies to to buy these power agreements, and it looks good on your SEC filing. So every quarter, uh, Publicly traded companies have to file uh, with the SEC, and they're talking about putting rules in that they have to show how much, basically, how clean they are to society. And there's been societal pressure and SEC pressure to to force them to buy more PPAs, thereby raising the price. So if I am a large provider of renewable energy, I just sit there and wait because people are going to be knocking down my door to pay me, and that's a great situation for operators, but it's a really bad situation for OEMs, wind turbine OEMs, because they're going to get squeezed. So I, I think the conditions are right for Siemens, Gamesa, GE, Vestas to start entering into the power market. I think that's inevitable that you got to have a sort of a vertical a vertical chain here and be on the receiving end of some of those funds. Otherwise, you're going to be left in the dust because companies like Amazon continue to buy renewable energy. Amazon uh, is, has a goal to make all of its operations powered by renewable. So that's 100% of its operations powered by renewable by 2020, 2025. So they were actually shooting for 2030. Now they moved it up five years. So 2025 is pretty soon. We're you no know, 2022, 2023, 2024. Boom. There you go. So yeah, we're pretty close. Uh, so, so they, so the company, Amazon, announced that they have 37 new renewable energy projects around the world. 
increasing the capacity of its renewable energy portfolio by nearly 30% from 12.2 gigawatts to 15.7 gigawatts. And I, that number doesn't make any sense, but okay, let's just take it for what it is. Bringing the total number of renewable energy projects to 310 across 19 countries. That's interesting. Now, some of these projects are in Australia, Rosemary. So they're not just doing it in the United States. They're doing it in U.S., Spain, France, Australia, Canada, India, Japan, and the UAE. And it varies, of course, you know, what part of the world they're in, if they're doing solar or if they're doing uh, wind, uh, and just, you know, where they're at. But one of the largest plants is going to be a 500-megawatt solar farm in Texas, of all places. Boy, Texas has been in, in the news a lot lately on renewables. Uh, so if, if you have large companies like Amazon continuing to go after PPAs and actually do their own developments, there's a huge demand. Amazon's just one of 500 or 1,000 companies that are like them that can sort of do these large projects. Isn't there just a huge demand for renewables to happen? And shouldn't the wind turbine OEMs be making a fortune right now? What am I missing? You're missing that you can't get the, the projects installed as fast as people want to install them. That's the, the issue. I don't think that developers have it so easy now oh, yeah. either because, you, you know, they've no. got rising prices and they are, you know, constantly experiencing surprises in their, their development because, you know, I'll go back to the Australian grid connection thing. You know, some people are waiting months, years longer than after they thought that they had already gotten an approval they're actually being delayed to be allowed to actually, you know, and flick the switch and and connect to the the grid, and that is incredibly expensive. There you <laughs> You've go. Got everything sitting there ready yeah. to go and unable to make any money from it. So I think it's pain all around, and I I do think that this is where you know governments who want to do um something for their for their climate want to do something for their renewables industry, they need to smooth the way for the projects to get rolled out. We don't. We don't need push on demand anymore. You can see that the demand is there. Um, what you need is to, you know, get rid of some of those bottlenecks that are, um, yeah, just like artificially standing in the way of how fast we could really move with this energy transition. So does it make sense for Amazon to buy a wind turbine OEM and do it all? <laughs> because it seems like they have the money to do that. If Elon Musk can pay $45 billion for Twitter, a stupid app, then Bezos can definitely buy, or whoever runs Amazon anymore, can definitely buy a solar production fa factory and could buy, easily purchase a wind turbine OEM today. Couldn't they? It just seems like that would be a drop yeah, in the bucket compared to their wealth. But do they need to? Is that is that going to solve any problem for them? I mean, the problems if, are um, in the you know development planning phases and also some of the you know raw materials steel and and stuff like that even chipping uh, i'm not seeing right? what problem yeah. buying a wind turbine manufacturer would solve for amazon oh i think it would it puts them in a huge marketplace so we just talked about ppas being such in, in such demand that mm. there's going to be even more demand to give over the next 10 years going 20 years gonna be huge demand for them <laughs> if, if that's the case it's like with Amazon Web Services, and I, I, I don't like using analogies, but I'm going to use an analogy here. Amazon Web Services was something that started because they had a whole bunch of servers sitting out in the middle of nowhere uh, because they needed it to run Amazon. And they realized, hey, we got all these extra servers. Why don't we just you know, let other people borrow it <laughs> or rent it? 
okay, there you go. Now you got a whole new industry. And it's very similar to Musk with uh, the, the, the batteries and the solar cells. Uh, somebody needs to get into wind because there hasn't been any big, big uh, billionaire type person, big name person in wind yet. It seems like that market is ripe because there's just such a, a d- depressed OEM pricing for GE Renewables is not doing well, even though they have great technology. Siemens Gamesa is struggling, even though Siemens definitely has the power to pull them out of that. Vestas is probably, obviously, the, the, the most successful of all of the OEMs at the moment. But even then, I don't think they're worth $30 billion. Do you? I, I, I think they could go less than that. And if Bezos wants to make a real impact in terms of renewable energy, somebody's going to have to step up here and do it. Because then you can control the whole, whole chain from you know, making steel, which is what and Musk is somehow involved in making... Uh, steel and batteries and a bunch of other stuff, it would be part of the vertical integration. Doesn't it, doesn't it seem like the logical conclusion to this? It's got to go somewhere. It can't, we can't sit where we are right now, I don't think. Maybe. I'm prepared to watch and, and see. <laughs> I don't, it doesn't sound obvious to me. Um, but, yeah, and I mean, there would be a lot, of, lot more pieces of the puzzle to, um, to fit in for uh, Amazon to, you know, reach that full vertical integration. I, I think maybe they would... Yeah. Move to development next, and uh, I don't know. I, I don't see it personally, but I, I'm prepared no. to to watch and wait and see see what happens. It's an idea, and I mean, the wind turbine manufacturers are struggling at the moment, so maybe there's just going to be a screaming screaming deal on a, a good manufacturer because they've all got really good technology. But I think it's not unlikely that yes. we'll see see some bargain basement, um, you know valuations uh in the near future and people that need to you know maybe need to sell um or go bankrupt that might be their two choices and then i could see any any one of these you know um benevolent billionaires whether it's um yeah musk or bezos or australia's bill gates brooks or yeah i don't know i can't imagine bill gates maybe maybe (laughs) (laughs) warren buffett kind of does is heavily invested in wind right now right so uh, they own Berkshire Hathaway owns Mid American, I believe. So there's there's one huge player in in the marketplace, and Amazon's obviously buying all the power. It just it just seems like a natural conclusion to this because uh, the pricing pressures are so enormous at the moment. Something's had to change. And see, the CEO of Siemens Gamesa has been talking about uh, material prices and raising of of wind turbine prices. So Siemens Gamesa is 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 going to raise its prices by high single digits to low double digits. So I think they're talking about 10, 10% price range for, because the cost of steel and copper and all the other things in wind turbines is, is growing so fast, uh, they can't keep up with it. So they're going to have to raise prices. And I think also, Rosemary, to your point, they also see that the, <laughs> the operators are selling these PPAs for crazy amounts and the OEMs are not getting any of it. So, uh, in in a in a uh, large industrial base like this, back in their early 1900s, they would have colluded, <laughs> totally would have colluded, <laughs> and set the price floor so that all of them could make money. But in this new world we live in, they can't collude, and so they have to sort of look at one another and say, "Okay, we got to all have to raise prices, right?" <laughs> and the way they do that, if you, if you watch, is, is they go to these conferences and they say the pricing pressure is overwhelming. We need to raise prices. And then they wait and they wait for mm-hmm. the next CEO to jump in and say, we need to raise prices. And so they, they come to a consensus out in the public 
which is a different mm. way of doing it, but it's still a consensus. And if everybody feels like they're going to raise prices, then they have there's less pressure not you know there's less pressure on them, so they can raise prices and know that their competitors are going to do the same thing. So I, I I think there's some really interesting dynamics going on at the moment because the big uh, elephant in the room is China, right? And China is is <laughs> is really lowered the price of the wind turbines. It's these crazy numbers. Uh, Chinese OEMs have lowered their costs uh, roughly in half over the last year or so. And it seems to be a, a couple of market dynamics been playing into it. Uh, the Chinese government has lowered the price they're paying for energy. So they had pur- power purchase agreements that were in the 80 to $100 per megawatt hour, and that got cut in half to 48 to roughly $55 per megawatt hour. So the Chinese producers had to lower their prices to accommodate that. And that drives down the Chinese market, which makes the the Chinese OEMs look outside of China for marketplaces, which is what they're doing. And I think they're going to be banging on a, a number of doors. The question is, Rosemary, does, like we talked about in, in sort of the... Um, the carbon limitations that the EU is talking about, does the, does the EU and the United States just basically tariff off uh, Chinese wind turbines? Is that the next step? Is that just where it has to happen? I'm not sure. It's been an ongoing story this, you know, because to start with, it was all about European manufacturers and especially Danish ones. And um, I know that the kind of, you know, popular right. opinion in, in Europe at least was that the Chinese competitors weren't a problem because the European quality was so much higher and, um, you know, people um, would, would care about quality uh, as much as they would care about price. Um, and then sure. I, I know that most of the European manufacturers and um, GE as well tried pretty hard to get into China, mainly failed. Um, weren't able to, you know, get a lot of that market yeah. because, you know, the the price is pretty hard to compete with. And I know with the, you know, projects that I worked on, I would get um, information about what the, you know, the target cost price was based on what um, some of the Chinese manufacturers were selling a similar product for. And it was like in, impossible to see how you could ever, ever reach that just based on the raw materials, let alone, you know, allowing anything for um, development or engineering or anything. Um, and then now we're seeing the second phase of this where it's not just about like Europeans trying to break into China and failing, but now we're seeing more and more of the Chinese manufacturers um, breaking into other markets. And um, I don't know if it's just a perception thing or if the quality really has gotten better, but it doesn't seem like there's such a, there's not the perception of a big gap anymore um, between them. Uh, right. And so I, I think that it is a really difficult difficult place to be but i think i don't think it's going to be the the way it's going to play out i don't think it'll be that you know the chinese manufacturers just um you know dominate and all of the european and american ones go out of business because i think that right now people are very concerned about protecting their (laughs) supply chains for things that they need um you know countries are concerned about that and if you look at like the u.s and canada um have battery supply chain um, projects in place to make sure that they have a robust supply chain for everything that they need for batteries. Um, and I mean, right. what's the point in a, a battery if you don't have any way to, you know, charge it? Um, so obviously you're going <laughs> to need wind turbines and solar panels are going to be part of that, uh, that too. So I will be pretty surprised if 
um, these governments just sit back and allow um, this takeover, but I don't know how they're going how they're going to stop it, what form it will take, whether it will be tariffs or whether it will be you know some sort of favorable tax treatment of the their own companies. I don't know. That's that's way outside my area, but I'll yeah, I'll definitely be surprised if <laughs> if all of the you know the you know companies with a long history of making wind turbines I'll, I'll be really surprised if they're all just allowed to fail um based on the pure economics of it i guess the question is is it going to be done quietly sort of behind the scenes or is it going to be something that the eu the united states crow about and i think that's the only the decision that has to be made right now i think it's going to go quiet it's going to be done in legislation sort of buried in a bunch of bureaucracy but i think it's going to happen and we're just going to read about it in the news at the bottom of you know, the last paragraph in a New York Times article, like, hey, we put an embargo on Chinese wind turbines. <laughs> That's how it'll go. <sighs> and uh, it, just because they're trying to keep some sort of relationship with with China at the moment, and it makes sense to do that. But I, I, I agree with you. I, I just don't see any way the OEMs in Europe and the United States survive it without it. So, so we're going to take a quick break here, and Rosemary's going to explain to us how renewable energy can actually stabilize the electric grid. We'll be right back. Ping Monitor is a continuous blade monitoring system which allows wind farm operators to stay ahead of maintenance. Wind techs can often hear damaged blades from the ground, but they can't continuously monitor all the turbines. They also can't calculate how bad the damage is or how fast it's propagating based on sound, but Ping can. Ping's acoustic system is being used on over 600 turbines worldwide. It allows operators to discover damage before it gets expensive and prioritize maintenance needs across their fleet, and it pays for itself the first time it identifies serious damage or saves you from doing an unnecessary visual inspection. Stop flying blind out there. Get Ping's ears on your turbines. Learn more at pingmonitor.co. All right, welcome back to the Uptime Podcast. we're going to be talking about how renewable energies can help stabilize the grid. And, and there's a project been going on in the United States with General Electric and the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. And they are operating a common class of wind turbine in a grid-forming mode, uh, which is when the, the generator can set the grid voltage and frequency. And the wind turbine can basically operate without power from the electric grid to s- synchronize it up. So there is a there is a part of the electricity grid about consistency of power. The frequency must be within certain tolerances, and it can't vary. It can't vary in amplitude very much because everything that's connected to it uh, has problems when you start uh, moving the frequency around and start moving the amplitude up and down. Uh, so the NREL and, and and GE are showing that they can basically use a, a popular uh, type of wind turbine to stabilize the power grid. Now, as we get into a more and, and more renewable energy situation in the United States and Australia and Europe, uh, a lot of the coal-fired generation and the gas-fired generation and, and in some places nuclear are going to start coming offline. So we don't have those, those big rotating masses to synchronize the grid. So, Rosemary, are, are, are these new efforts to synchronize the grid with, with uh, wind turbines and other uh, renewables are going to be the future, or are we always going to have to have some big gas-fired, electrically turned, synchronous mass to, to keep the grid frequency and, and amplitude going? I think we're definitely going to move away from the physical inertia um, that we've had with 
you know, with thermal generators, mm. they're just so big and heavy that when they're turning, even if, you know, like demand suddenly drops off, it, it can't slow down that fast. And so, you know, it automatically, it has, yeah, like actual inertia in the, you know, in the sense that you learn it in your high school physics right. class. It, it's got that inertia <laughs> in the system, um, can't, can't be slowed down. Um, and then you've got, um, so, so that's fossil fuel using stuff or, or nuclear, big, you know, you've, use some sort of heat to um generate steam and and turn a, a huge massive turbine around then you can kind of copy that but without the fossil fuel usage with a synchronous condenser which is also a big massive rotating thing but it's you can spin that up using electricity from you know whatever source it can be clean electricity so that's that's clean but it's still kind of you know like old technology in a sense i was just copying the old technology and then we've got the the new ones, uh, the new technologies where you're actually trying to do away with any kind of spinning mass and you make it, sometimes they call it like artificial inertia or synthetic inertia or electronic inertia where you're trying to, um, you know, have a really fast response that will um, have the same effect as as the, you know, inertia of a physical system. And so mm-hmm. I've seen in, um, in South Australia uh, it has – it's a you know a gigawatt scale grid, and it's actually it's a really interesting one to watch because they have the most variable renewable penetration of any any grid of that size in the world. So they don't have any hydro, so all of their renewables is um, wind and solar. So it's very variable. And wow. currently, they they often have times where they have more than enough wind and solar for their whole their whole grid, and they're connected to other parts of Australia, so they can export it. Right, but. They always need at least two thermal generators running to provide this inertia. And the reason it's two is in case one sure. of them breaks. And so you've breaks. still got one. Yeah. And so they will soon be doing some trials to move away from that. One part of it is with these synchronous condensers, um, but that's kind of easy because you already know exactly what's going <laughs> to happen when you, when you have that in place because right. they behave just <laughs> like a thermal generator. Um, but another thing is with, um, yeah, grid forming batteries, they've got a, a 250 megawatt hour um, grid forming battery that is in development now, um, and that's going to provide some synthetic inertia. So there's that option. And then we've got this project. <laughs> whoa, from, whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait, wait, yeah. wait. You use the word synthetic inertia. Want to explain that yeah. for a second? What is synthetic inertia? <laughs> Well, you're the electrical engineer, aren't you? <laughs> well, I know what inertia is, and I know what synthetic is. You try to merge two things that don't go together. Inertia, is, inertia has to do with rotating mass, right? So it, it's not synthetic. What? It's they're trying are, are, to mimic basic- mimic inertia. So you know that there, there's okay. iner- there is the physical inertia, and it has the effect of stabilizing the grid. But you can also yeah. program um, a battery so that it also you know rushes in at you know within the split second to um correct the um frequency and the the voltage in the grid that's my mechanical engineer's understanding of how synthetic inertia <laughs> inertia works don't ask me any more questions any more depth on that one <laughs> well yeah. it, okay so let's talk about that for a second so we have a rotating mass which is the way we would do it today so we have this big massive thing spinning around and if there is some big disconnect from the grid which there can be occasionally uh the mm. the the inertia of this basically a generator at that point just dumps massive loads of energy to stabilize the grid it loses some momentum by doing it but it's mm. essentially it can fill in the gaps instantaneously or pretty close to instantaneously 
can can a battery solution do the same thing? Can it do that massive dump of energy to con- stabilize that grid? Because the consequences of an unstable grid are not that you, you know, your iPhone stops charging. You start losing like really big industrial things, motors, three-phase motors and, and that drive your economy, get wobbly and don't like it and start doing damage to, to big industrial sites. So it's really critical. So it can, can that system really support a whole big, large grid, a battery in, in system? In theory, yes. And we already see batteries. I don't know how it works in the U.S., but in Australia, all of our grid batteries are all providing um, um, ancillary services to the grid. So it's mostly, yeah, frequency mm. support um, on a smaller scale. It's not, they're not the only thing there. They're not forming the grid. They're, right. you know, just, you know, maintaining it. Um, and yeah, in reality, I guess we don't know the answer to the question of whether that's possible on the whole grid scale yet because that everyone's only in trials. No one is just, you know, doing it all the time. But I, I don't mm. get the impression that anyone thinks that we're going to fail to make this work in the next few years. Um, yeah, so it's interesting. I'll, I'll and then tell what, you how what it I fails. Was, <laughs> how does it fail? <laughs> oh, you, know what, you know how it fails? So he, he, here's, yeah. here's the thing about batteries, right? Batteries earn a mode to self-protect. And if there is some, and most battery systems are made identical to one another, right? And we're seeing the same thing happen in aviation, by the way. This is why I know about it. So when batteries go into self-protect mode, they go off regardless. They just say, I don't want to have a fire and I'm going to turn myself off. If you have that happen in multiple places in a sort of a synchronous grid, you're going to have a big problem where a, a large rotating mass does not care. And I, th- I think that maybe the, the difference here is, is are we looking at what the failure modes are? And when we thought about the, the common mode failures, it may be in a system like that where you have the same repetitive battery system in different parts of the grid that they may act simultaneously to disconnect, disconnect themselves or to, to do something synchronously that it, it shouldn't do. Does that make sense? Why you wouldn't yeah, want that? Yeah, and I mean, I, I'm sure that that's the kind of issues that they're looking into with the trials and to see how much redundancy you need and how to make sure that you don't get the you know same mode being copied in, in multiple things. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone's suggesting you, you just um, switch off all the thermal generators one day and switch on um, the your synthetic inertia instead without <laughs> you know doing it gradually and uh, you know at first they'll do it incrementally um and with you know some some physical inertia as a backup in place mm-hmm. yeah but what i haven't seen before this yeah. project that I, you've I, raised with with ge and nrel and the wind turbines i've never seen a wind turbine used in this way and i i think it's interesting when i first um learned about inertia i thought it was really interesting that you always talk about you know spinning generators versus renewables and I mean, of course, to me, a, a wind turbine is a spinning generator. It, it, it spins, right? <laughs> but it's not right. providing. It's not providing inertia. Even though you can't, you can't physically stop a wind turbine in a split second any more than you can stop any other, you know, large mass from um, from turning really, really fast. It it isn't providing that grid inertia, and I don't want to um, get the explanation wrong because you're the electrical engineer, but my inter- my understanding of that is because they're, they're variable speed generators, right? So they change right. they change right. speed to match to keep them efficient in multiple wind speeds, and so you can't just use them like a traditional yeah. um, a traditional yeah to provide traditional inertia. So that's why they because the this project uh, I believe is also yeah or they're calling it virtual synchronous generator. Um, so it's all virtual. Yeah. yeah. 
electronic they're faking it out. The stabilizing yeah. feature electronic. of generators. We're living yeah. in the matrix. Yes, that's exactly what <laughs> we'll be doing. And, and I think that's the, the part that we don't know, right? And, and engineers are definitely, the grid is not something to play around with. Uh, your whole economy is based on the grid, so you can't have it go offline like we have had it done. It has happened several times in like New York City where the, the grid has gone off and we have to go figure out why. Like, oops, mm. we made a mistake. Mm. Uh, you just don't want to do that if you can avoid it. And if we move to something that's renewable, that's great, but we ought to make the grid more reliable, uh, more redundant. And that's probably where GE and NREL are going because we're going to more electrification. And there's a big effort up in Ontario to, uh, to <laughs> make their GO Transit train system electrified. And so the Ontario government is spending $1.6 billion as a first phase of electrifying their train lines and it's they're going to start electrifying it in 2023 and are planning 11 years to do this which seems like forever rosemary (laughs) this train line's not that big so 11 years is a long time uh so they're going to run an all-new electric train fleet and and, uh, rosemary uh you have relatives up in canada how big of a deal is this uh to electrify these trains well i think it's uh I think it's a pretty big deal because they're currently diesel trains, so they have to just get rid of them. It would be easier in some other places are using like diesel electric trains where um, you wouldn't you'd right. be able to just convert them over to run on um, yeah to run electrically or to be all electric. So that's a big deal. I thought it was interesting because you know it's a big government project to put some infrastructure in, and I haven't seen a lot of that um, in the energy transition where governments really you know spend a lot of money up front to make make the system more efficient in the long term you know I keep on coming back over and over again to transmission but that would be an example of where <laughs> if we would get that right we could have really cheap electricity after that because you, you know if everything was in place um and set up correctly other examples are you know you could do the same thing instead of electrifying or as well as electrifying trains you can also electrify the um, roads so that you can have you know electric trucks without huge batteries um, but it's just it's right. a huge upfront cost and even though when you look at the economics of it you know over 10 20 30 years it's cheaper it's a it's a cheaper way to do things it just they don't seem to happen anymore they did back in the i don't know 30s and 40s people governments were were doing these big infrastructure projects and i mean that's how how i think basically yeah. all hydroelectric dams got built because they don't pay themselves back in 5 years like <laughs> you know like a private company would right. want them to if they they build it you know sometimes they need 50 years or or more to um pay back the investment but after that you know it's something that you that you have so I guess Canada would be the place for it to happen. Um, and then after, other than that, yeah, like um, Scandinavia, those places where they do seem to trust the government to spend their money for the, the long term. But I would not see, I mean, we can't even get trains in the first place in Australia, not really, because uh, that's too much, you know, public money to spend <laughs> up front and everyone's wondering what's the business case and it better, yeah, better have a five-year payback period. And, um, yeah, I, I, f- I feel like it's a shame that, we're so fixated on these short payback periods. Um, uh, to me, that's what government should be for, for the, the stuff that's too long-term for, government, uh, for private companies to make money from um, but would benefit people yeah. in the long run. Well, So Bombardier, which is not Bombardier anymore, up in Canada, was building battery-powered trains. Uh, just out, I'm sure it was just outside of Montreal. Now, that, that division had been sold off to Alstom, I think. 
So there are battery-powered trains right in Canada that are being manufactured, and I think they were, were making those trains for Germany. So they had a, a basically a clean battery train transit system all ready to go. I'm surprised that Ontario, if that system is still working, that Ontario didn't grab hold of that because that would solve a lot of problems. Instead of having to electrify all the track, you'd have these battery-powered cars. I assume you'd be able to charge them up fairly quickly and thereby eliminate a lot of the infrastructure problems. So. There's some cool technology up in Canada, and it seems like they're headed in the right direction. Uh, and you're right, Rosemary, it, it, these large infrastructure projects have come in times of economic downturn for the most part. It seems like we're headed to one now. So maybe this is a, a way of investing in the economy to kickstart the economy again, and maybe we can get some electrification out of it. And that would be good. So we're going to take a short break right here, and we'll be right back uh, talking about tension, torque, and robots right after this. Lightning is an act of God, but lightning damage is not. Actually, it's very predictable and very preventable. Strike Tape is a lightning protection system upgrade for wind turbines made by WeatherGuard. It dramatically improves the effectiveness of the factory LPS so you can stop worrying about lightning damage. Visit weatherguardwind.com to learn more, read a case study, and schedule a call today. Welcome back to the Uptime Podcast. Uh, two techie things to finish off our show. GE and the Offshore Renewable Energy, ORE, Catapult over in the UK have demonstrated how a six-legged robot called Bladebug can inspect wind turbine bolts autonomously, eliminating the need for technicians to loosen and retighten thousands of bolts per turbine as part of routine maintenance. So this is the culmination of two ORE catapult uh, companies that have come together because I think they're probably located in the same building. Uh, uh, Bladebug, which if, if you've watched uh, LinkedIn or YouTube, you see this little six-legged creature crawling up and down wind turbine blades lately. It's a really cool project. And uh, we've had Chris Cheslek, the, the founder of Bladebug, on the podcast. And, and uh, Echobolt. And Echobolt is a technology which uses ultrasound technology. And Rosemary, this is going to be in your world, not in mine, of of checking blade tension, uh, blade tension, bolt tension, checking bolt tension using ultrasound. And I don't have any idea how that works, but it sounds like they've combined the robot blade bug with this Echobolt technology. They can autonomously let this robot run around inside of a wind turbine and check to make sure all the bolts are tight. So. The robot successfully crawled in the interior of Ori Catapult 7 megawatt uh, leaded mouth demonstrating turmit and fife, and it identified any of the bolts that didn't have the proper tension. So this sounds really cool. It's actually applying two things that, uh, that if you think about offshore wind, how are you going to check all the bolts all the time? Are you going to send a person on there on, on to each of these little uh, offshore rigs to, to go tighten the bolts and check them all, or are you going to have a robot that just lives there and checks the bolts every once in a while. Doesn't doesn't this sound like cool technology, Rosemary? Yeah, I think so. Um, and uh, you know, we're, sometimes we talk about wind turbine failures on this show, and we speculate. We we never know the the root cause of the failure because you know, obviously, the companies don't share that information. But in my mind, I'm always assuming that it's you know some failure to check the tension of of bolts, um, you know, in the annual maintenance or um, yeah, and after the commissioning period, they usually check them again. So 
this would be a really good way to hopefully, you know, um, avoid some of those problems of missed, missed, missed problems, I guess. To catch them. I, I don't know how, how it works with the ultrasound testing. Uh, are they just checking? I guess you could see, um, you know, which, which parts are binding and which parts aren't. Um, maybe there's, yeah, some like contact conditions that they're looking for. Uh, I can't really see how that would work. Otherwise, it would be interesting to look into. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna describe this with my hands. So unless you're watching on YouTube, you're not gonna, you're not gonna see this. But as you tighten the bolt, you stretch it, right? And I am assuming that as you stretch it, that's as tensioning. There you go. Uh, and this is an electrical person speaking, so stop me when I go off the rails here. But as you tighten up that nut down, the bolt gets a little bit longer and gets stretched, right? So. I'm assuming that the echo bolt system actually measures the the length of the bolt once it's stretched to see if it changes. It, I, I, that's what I'm assuming. I, I know there's more math and physics beyond it, but that seems like the basic fundamentals that if you knew what the bolt length was ultrasound wise, you could then check it six months later to make it sure it's the same length. Does that make sense? It maybe. Um, it. How much do they do they actually stretch compared to the you know how accurate the measurement is? Um, maybe that's how it is. I think I've just realised that neither of us have any any clue how this thing <laughs> this thing works. That it, that would be really interesting. Oh, I, I think I'm pretty close actually. I think maybe I'm pretty close. Know. Now we've asked Echobolt to be. On, I, oh, okay. I I don't know. We've we've, had, we've tried to have Echobolt on the podcast multiple times, but they've always been too busy. So huh. now that they've connected with Bladebug, now they need to come on the podcast and explain how this magic works because this technology is needed in industry and we just don't understand yeah. the physics behind it. And no, but so you're absolutely right. That know, for, right? So they need to come on. For, you're absolutely right that for offshore, this is, it will make a huge difference because, I mean, everything is a pain offshore and the, <laughs> the less people that you have to send out there to physically, yeah, they're actually loosening and tightening bolts to, because, I mean, you can't just put a, wrench onto a bolt and you know measure the torque like that you do have to actually be tightening it to to measure the torque so it's not right. such a, a straightforward process i know if you go inside a wind turbine the the main like first warning sign is always someone will get a, a paint pen and you know draw draw a line on the um on the, the, the nut and right. onto the side of the you know whatever it's attached to and just make sure that it hasn't rotated and um, that's, that's the high tech, <laughs> the high tech way to, you know, do a vi quick <laughs> visual check that, um, yeah, that your bolts aren't losing yeah. tension, but, um, yeah, this, this is obviously <laughs> going to go a little bit, a little bit better than a hand drawn paint line on, on there. So yeah, no, really cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, I guess they could, I guess the robot could check to make sure the, the, the paint lines do line up. I mean, it's just the first check that it does is say, okay, the, the paint line is still there. I don't need to check this one. I can go check the other ones. I mean, even if it just did that, that'd be a huge improvement than putting a human out there in the ocean to go do that mm -hmm. on thousands of turbines. So that's pretty interesting technology. And if Echo Bolt is listening, they need to come on to the podcast. All right. So in our next story, uh, there's this new sort of development battery called a freeze thaw battery, which freezes its energy for later use. It, it's a it basically a, a a step towards batteries that can have really long-term storage. So you could actually uh, put energy in this battery in the springtime. And then when it gets cold outside, you can release this, this battery for heating or, or whatever. Uh, so they're talking the, 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 uh, Nash, sorry, the, the Northwest National Laboratory has uh, published some, um, 
description of this. And right now, it's only the size of a hockey puck. And Rosemary, do you have hockey in Australia? You know what a hockey not puck really. is? But I you, know what oh, a hockey you, puck is, but not okay. because we play hockey a lot in Australia. <laughs> I've been it's in, too in warm. Canada. It's yeah, it's a, about um, Canadians game. It's fun. All right. Well, mm. there you go. Uh, so it's about three, four inch diameter. So the, the concept is uh, it's, it's a battery that sort of works on a salt, on a molten salt. So they heat it up to 180 degrees Celsius, allow, allowing the ions to flow in the, in the liquid electrolyte. Uh, and they, so they put a bunch of energy in it. When it's hot, then they cool it to room temperature, and all that energy is locked into the battery. So it's like a suspended animation sort of thing. And then when they need to release the energy, they heat it back up again, and then the energy flows out of it. So it, it's a, a way of having really a long-term battery storage. And I guess the question is, first, do we need something like that that stores energy for months at a time uh, on the grid? And if so, is this a, a possible solution to that? I think it's a possible solution. I think that um, this, uh, the reporting on this falls into a lot of traps that you see for new technologies, um, you know, that are trying to generate hype in that I think it misrepresents what the real problems are and misrepresents what other technologies can do. I mean, we already have technologies that can hold mm. energy seasonally if you want. I mean, you, there's nothing stopping you if you've got a, a dam with pumped hydro capability nothing stopping you from pumping the water uphill in July and then leaving it there until January. You can, you can do that if you want. You're not, not really going to lose anything much. Um, even a lithium-ion battery, you know, usually a lithium-ion battery is only one or four-hour duration, but it's not because it's going to lose all its charge over four hours. It's because it's not economic to just charge a battery, one, you know, buy a really expensive battery and then um, you do, you know, infrequent charge cycles. So if you've bought a battery, you want to be getting as many charge cycles as you can. And it's usually, you know, once a day is um, kind of the minimum that you're, you're going to want to be able to get your money back, um, right. or, you know, make a profit. Um, yeah. And then for seasonal storage, there are already, you can already do thermal storage, just much lower tech with um, just heating water up and leaving it in an insulated pond. Um, people already have been doing that for a long time in Scandinavia and in Canada, and you can get ninety mm. percent efficiency just from that. If you just want the low low grade heat for you know heating up buildings, um, then that is a much cheaper way to do it than this technology. So I think yeah, it's um, it's cool. It's a problem we do need to solve, but we already do have solutions, and it's not the it's not the technology that's a challenge. With seasonal storage, it's the economics. Um, how do you make your your money make money if you're only generating, you know, every six months or or so? That's really right. really challenging, <laughs> and um, that's why we don't see a lot of seasonal storage currently because it's a lot cheaper to you know continue to use fossil fuels, which can also be source, stored seasonally. So yeah, I think it's interesting. I, I don't oh, think it stands out as a game-changing technology because there's lots of lots of options. And um, yeah, so I mean, interesting to see how it develops. But it seems like you know, the size of a hockey puck. It's um, not imminent that we're going to be you know seeing this roll out next year or or anything like that. So something to keep an eye out over the next ten right. years or so. I'd say. Yeah, I, I'm with you. You know, let's try a bunch of different things and see what sticks. Uh, they're just saying that the the battery's theoretical energy density is 260 watt hours 
per kilogram, which is higher than lead acid in flow batteries. So, I mean, there is there is something to is say for that. The question is, though? do you, like is you said, is it relevant for seasonal? Is it storage? relevant? Right. It, yeah, you're not going to be driving the, around. That, that's the question. You know, is, seasonal is, storage in a car or an airplane or something like. <laughs> I'd hope not. Right? <laughs> <laughs> that would not be a good use of the storage technology. No, yeah. absolutely not. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, so we're going to keep an eye on it. And there's a lot of new technology coming out in the battery world because it's going to be a battery future for sure. Uh, so that's, that's our uh, episode for this week. Uh, if you have time and you like renewable energy, you need to go check out Rosemary's Engineering with Rosie YouTube channel, which is approaching 1 million subscribers at this point. Uh, if if you like watching us true. on YouTube, the Uptime Podcast on YouTube, you could also, also listen to us on Apple and Spotify. <laughs> well, aren't we all approaching one million <laughs> at, some, at some point, right? <laughs> yeah, the number's getting but higher. But check us out on YouTube. Yeah, it's trending up. That's what it needs to do. That's all we need to do. Trend up. So check us out on YouTube. Check out Rosie's channel on YouTube. And also listen to us on all your favorite podcast platforms. So we'll see you next week on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast.